Your dog loves you, right? Like acts like you've risen from the dead every time you come home from the store? And what have you ever done to deserve this blind devotion? The answer lies not just with you and the bacon you keep slipping him, but with his ancient, wolfish origins. Join us for this episode of Footnoting History as we investigate doggy prehistory. I'm Christina, and welcome to Footnoting History. Why is a historian going to spend the next 20 minutes or so talking to you about the science of dogs? Well, to begin with, the history of the domesticated dog is the history of humankind as well. Molecular biology and archaeological finds assure us that canines and humans have been associating pretty much as long as there have been humans. History is by definition recorded, whether in writing or orally. But what we're looking at today is neither, so it's actually prehistory. Most of the best evidence we have for canine origins has been collected by archaeologists and paleontologists who study the physical traces of their subjects, as well as biologists and ethologists who conduct physiological and behavioral studies on living animals. By piecing together our evidence from the past with the study of living dogs, we can start to understand how and why they came to be so integrated into human society, and learn that, perhaps surprisingly, our long-standing association has changed us as much as it's changed them. So, where to begin? Actually, this first part of the podcast is neither history nor of dogs, because to really understand the dog, we have to start with the wolf. The earliest common ancestors of the wolves, coyotes, and dogs we know today originated in what would become the North American continent some 32 million years ago, during the Oligocene period. Our story begins some 1.8 million years ago, however, during the Pleistocene epoch with what scientists refer to as the wolf event. The first gray wolves, Conus lupus, begin to appear at that point. They weren't the only wolves around, though. Shout out to all you Game of Thrones fans out there. As recently as 20,000 years ago, the dire wolf was spread throughout what's now the U.S. and ranged far into South America. CGI notwithstanding, they were quite a bit bigger than modern wolves, which are, as a side note, way bigger than you think when you see them in person. A dire wolf measured maybe 30 inches at the shoulder, as opposed to modern wolves, which average a couple of inches shorter, maybe 28 inches. For reference, a fully grown male German shepherd reaches around 24 to 26 inches at the shoulder and can weigh around 90 to 100 pounds, so, you know, that's pretty big. They would have had a much heavier build than modern gray wolves and a much more powerful bite, judging by their teeth meaning they most likely hunted even bigger prey than their extant cousins. Part of the reason we know so much about dire wolves is thanks to the state of California. If you ever find yourself in L.A., after going to Pink's while on the subject of dogs, may I recommend the Lord of the Rings dog, get yourself down to the La Brea Tar Pits, a huge concentration of not only dire wolves, but also saber-toothed tigers and other Pleistocene predators were found there, suggesting that unfortunately, prehistoric, like most animals of pretty much any period, including humans, if they're not paying attention, fail hard at tar. The site at La Brea dates from 10,000 years ago, and it reveals that for an extended period of time, gray and dire wolves actually coexisted and competed. It's a mystery why we got stuck with regular gray wolves and not, you know, massive dire wolves that could telepathically communicate with their warg owners. Probably there were Lannisters involved. Anyway, they may have actually been too big, too slow, and too heavy to hunt the faster prey animals left over at the end of the Pleistocene. As another side note, though, people have been developing a breed called the American Alsatian, a bigger and hairier version of the German Shepherd, specifically to resemble the direwolf. So, you can have a direwolf of your own, sort of. At the same time all these wolves are running around, you also have humans. Homo erectus, the predecessor of Homo sapiens, first appears just around the time that wolves do, around 1.8 million years ago. Homo sapiens comes later, 200,000 years ago. The evidence for the nature of the association between these wolves and these humans, though, is ambiguous. 
archaeological sites can be difficult to read, especially since it seems that from very early on, humans and wolves lived in, in really close proximity. At the site of La Grotte du Lazarette in the south of France, we find wolf skulls apparently intentionally placed at the mouths of caves from around 125,000 years ago. And there's even evidence that the connection between Homo and wolf extends back before Homo sapiens. Homo erectus pecanensis, Peking man, apparently shared space with wolves 500,000 years ago in Zhukudian, China. But what was the nature of their relationship? Were they interlopers, friends, partners, dinner? That's something the pure science can't tell us. We can only theorize. Regardless of how difficult the archaeology can be, science can offer us a rough timeline of when some wolves began making the leap into dogdom. The dog genome was completed in December of 2005, the result of a genetic analysis of material from a female boxer under the direction of Dr. Kirsten lindblad Toe. This was the mapping of the dog's entire genetic code. It revealed that the closest living relative of the dog is indeed the wolf, Conus lupus, followed distantly by the coyote, Conus latrans. The wolf and coyote diverged genetically from one another a million years ago, and dogs diverged from wolves more than a hundred thousand years ago. However, the oldest fossil finds that can be indisputably called dogs come from 15,000 years ago. Before that, the skeletons are either partial or hard to tell. Um, they seem somewhere between wolf and dog, judging by their physical characteristics. Evidence for domestication can be tricky, again, but with a little ingenuity, we can start to form a picture of when and how it might have happened. As we said, we have some evidence for the taming of dogs at least 15,000 years ago, but probably it was ongoing even before that. Fun fact, dogs were actually the only domestic animals Columbus and later the conquistadors encountered when they came to the New World. DNA analysis of the remains of these pre-Columbian pooches, however, indicates that they have Old World DNA from the original Eurasian wolves. What this means is that despite the original canids originating in North America before spreading to Eurasia, Dogs actually came back with the first settlers of North America who crossed the Beringian land bridge, now the Bering Strait between Russia and Alaska, some 20,000 years ago, helping their masters settle a new continent. And if that seems amazing, consider the dingo. I often consider the dingo, and whether it has eaten my baby. Dingoes are one of the oldest dog breeds, if we put dog in air quotes. I say that because while dingoes currently live in Australia, some as pets, they're actually feral. Feral, as opposed to wild, means that they had a tame ancestry, but they got away from it at some point. So for dingoes to reach Australia when they did, some 5,000 years ago, they would actually have had to come by boat, you know, with humans. That's an example of an animal using human technology to colonize. Now, before we wax sentimental about these faithful pooches helping their human companions conquer brave new worlds, it should be noted that dogs were not just hunting companions or someone convenient to blame for inevitable bad smells. They were a reliable, friendly, portable source of calories. Many cultures to this day continue to eat dog meat. I can't find anyone who'll tell me what it tastes like, though. Don't look at me like that, I'm just curious. One of the oldest pieces of evidence adduced in favor of canine domestication and what that meant to a society comes out of Israel from around 12,000 years ago at the archaeological site of Ein Malaha, which was excavated in 1978. There are a number of burials there from the Natufian culture, a hunter-gatherer people just on the cusp of the agricultural divide. One of the bodies is buried, curled in the fetal position, with its hand around the torso of a four- to five-month-old puppy, its head resting on the body. Burial practice, which tends to remain more stable than any other aspect of society, indicates a relationship with dogs that goes beyond what's for dinner and moves into the realm of symbolic value. In any case, dogs were domesticated well before humans shifted from hunter-gatherer to agriculturalist and livestock cultivator. 
They were, and this is important, the very first animal humans domesticated. Why? First of all, what is domestication? We can define it as the absorption of another species into human society to the point that it loses contact with the wild species from which it was descended. This has implications that are both biological and behavioral. The biological end of it comes when you have a separate breeding population that continues apart from its wild cousins and develops its own gene pool. The second is behavioral. Humans take charge of this group and assimilate it into their own society, manipulating it for their own ends. Now, biologically, there isn't much difference between dogs and their closest relatives, the wolf and the coyote. They can and do interbreed and produce viable offspring. On the other hand, there's a major difference between dogs and their wild cousins, and it's just that, their wildness. Dogs have us, and to a certain degree, need us. They can become feral and live in the wild, but even feral dogs have a connection to humans that wolves and coyotes don't. So, when does a dog stop being a wolf and start being a dog? Biologists note that a number of physical changes distinguish wolves from dogs, and they can be summed up with one word, pedomorphism. This means that dogs retain juvenile characteristics throughout their lives, characteristics that wolves lose after puppyhood. The most obvious difference between the wolf and the dog is, of course, their appearance. The most extreme example of this is a dog breed like the Pekingese. Tiny little stunted head and muzzle, huge eyes, very soft fur. It's an eternal puppy, basically. Even dogs less extreme than the Pekingese have proportionately much smaller skulls, shorter and broader muzzles, and lighter bones than a wolf of the same size. And many dog breeds have flop ears. Dogs' teeth tend to be much closer together than wolves, a side effect of the shorter muzzle. Humans later exacerbated this puppyish tendency with selective breeding, which will be the subject of a future podcast, and over sometimes thousands of years, succeeded in modifying dogs beyond all recognition from their wolfish origins. The juvenile aspects of the dog aren't just skin deep, either. In terms of behavior, dogs act like babies their entire lives. They solicit food, they whine, they play, and they look to mom and dad for help, something grown wolves will never do. This last one is the key factor here. Dogs, like humans, have an expectation of communication. They want to communicate with us and expect us to communicate with them. They watch us attentively, attuned to our every facial expression or gesture, much as wolves look to their pack in the wild. In fact, according to Brian Hare of the Duke Canine Cognition Center, dogs regularly outperform chimps in tasks designed to test their ability to decipher human gestures. This communication runs the other way, too. Dogs bark, right? Wolves usually don't, except wolves in captivity, interestingly enough. Barking is a communicative act, whether with other dogs or with humans. In another Duke study, humans were actually able to distinguish between different types of bark, for example, to alert you to a stranger, or play bark, or as an indication of real distress, though they weren't so good at distinguishing between different dogs. Okay, but how did domestication happen? Did people set out to domesticate the dog? Did it happen by accident? Did they actually domesticate us? Here are three scenarios for your consideration. First, the classic and perhaps the most intuitive explanation linked to the first thing humans and wolves must have realized they had in common all those years ago, the hunt. We mentioned before that wolves and humans are both social predators. Scientists have found that there seems to be a weight threshold for predators that determines what they hunt. Under a weight of about 21 kilograms, or 46 pounds, a predator will hunt things smaller than itself, invertebrates, rodents, birds, whatever. This is what foxes do. Once you cross that threshold, though, the payoff of energy expended to hunt versus calories it takes to keep your body running shifts, and you're forced to begin hunting things bigger than you. This is why you don't see lions hunting birds, except possibly for fun. The caloric payoff is not worth it. 
This is in spite of the threat of injuries. Wolves hunting bison, for example, are significantly more likely to be fatally injured by their prey than if they just stuck to squirrels, but squirrels just aren't worth it calorically. This helps explain the social grouping of these hunters. Working together is the only way they can actually bring down an animal bigger than themselves. Wolves and dogs, unlike big cats, like the lion, can have neither the size and speed to sneak up and pounce on a large prey animal like a gazelle, nor the jaw power to deliver a single killing bite. Instead, they rely on group strategy and a series of bites in the midst of a long chase that's really a process of wearing down their prey. And by employing the skill and cooperation, they can actually take down prey much larger than lions can. In the Pleistocene, you could see packs of wolves taking down woolly mammoths. And the only other predator that can do that? Humans. There's a definite connection between social hunting, not just social living, and intelligence, as we'll see. However, the idea that it was inherently mutually beneficial for wolves and humans to pool their hunting resources doesn't really hold water, for the same caloric reason. While it's true that they hunted the same food, and with some very similar techniques, humans couldn't have kept a pack of wolves to hunt with, or even a wolf or two. They would have just been too expensive to feed. An adult wolf can require up to 11 pounds of meat per day. They would have eaten those early homo sapiens out of cave and home. Okay. So if wolves and humans didn't actively seek each other out as hunting partners, they were still living in close proximity. So here comes scenario number two. As we've said, both wolves and humans were apex predators who lived and hunted together in packs. The pack dynamic is important. It means it's not everyone for him or herself. Rather, the pack can ensure collective survival. Most important, spend a good amount of time caring for their young. But how, for example, do wolves, fierce predators, and carnivores live in packs without tearing each other apart? The answer is their patterns of submissive and dominant behavior. It's the same thing you can observe if you take your dog to the dog park. Every new dog he meets is a constant negotiation between who's dominant, who's submissive. But no one needs to get hurt or killed in working that out. There's a ritualized behavior to avoid that, you know, involving butt sniffing, play bowing, nipping, chasing, etc. Humans don't sniff each other's butts, usually, though I guess there are probably discrete social venues where you may do so. But they have evolved behavior to live in a large society that's even more complex and, well, perhaps naively, focused on preserving harmonious social relations. So, some biologists theorize that while wolves were generally competing with humans for food, perhaps a wolf pup or two found their way into human society as playthings and occasional sources of food. A particularly passive one might even survive to adulthood. You add a few more, and you have a passive breeding population that's more likely to produce a passive litter. This might seem like it would be a long, painstaking process, but actually this can happen very quickly. Dmitry Belyaev found this out in his massive multi-generational breeding project of Russian gray foxes beginning in the 1960s. Belyaev actually deserves a footnote of his own. He came of age in Stalinist Russia in the shadow of the gulags. He was a geneticist, which was a really dangerous thing to be in that particular time and place. This was because Trofim Lysenko, a scientist with Stalin's stamp of approval and some very idiosyncratic ideas, notably that genetics and the idea of natural selection had no ideological place in an egalitarian communist society, determined the direction of official scientific research, which makes Belyaev's foray into the genetic side of domestication all the more astonishing. Under the guise of conducting a study to improve the quality of the fur of the Russian silver fox, staple of the Russian economy, he bred generations upon generations of foxes in his Siberian laboratory, selecting for just one characteristic, friendliness to humans. Down the generations, he continued to breed the most affectionate and social foxes, and within six generations, he had created a small number of what he termed a domestic elite of foxes, that were not only far more affectionate, but also had pedomorphic characteristics, with stockier, more puppy-like heads, floppy ears, curled tails, 
and splotchy or piebald coats, who follow their handlers around in never-ending search of treats and scritches. By the 20th generation, over a third of foxes belong to that elite, and by the late 90s, 70 to 80 percent. Don't Google them, because you'll want to fly to Russia and adopt one, seriously. So, you breed for one thing and wind up coincidentally creating a host of other characteristics that seem to coincide pretty exactly with dog-like ones. And this happens over only a few generations. So, if you select for the most socially competent wild animals, so to speak, you wind up with a domesticated version of that wild animal. Okay, maybe it doesn't take as long as you think, but the process is still pretty painstaking, right? I mean, humans have to oversee the whole process and, and weed out unsuitable animals? Not necessarily. Our third and final scenario. Keeping all of the foregoing in mind, the social nature of humans and wolves as hunters, their shared social expertise at living together without killing each other most of the time, let's consider the practical side of how domestication happens. Some scientists actually suggest that dogs domesticated themselves. It's all linked to something else that seems to be a constant in human history. Garbage. Humans, including prehistoric humans, produce garbage like nothing else. They cook, which renders some of the food more edible for them and results in delicious smells, but also in waste, both human-produced and also especially the proverbially tempting bones left over after cooking. All of this, some scientists theorize, proved irresistible to wolves. Some wolves would have crept close to human habitation to take advantage of this source of extra calories. Which wolves? the bravest ones, since humans had weapons and weren't generally too tolerant of interlopers. Brave wasn't enough, though. A wolf that would come close and then attack would certainly not be tolerated. The humans would kill it. But a brave wolf that could at the same time be submissive to humans and live near them without harming them, that was a companion worth keeping around. So, the most suitable wolves essentially selected themselves for domestication. And what about the domesticators? Well, as I asked at the beginning of this podcast, your dog loves you, right? Well, yeah, presumably, if you remember to feed him and take him out and stuff. But really, what love is, is hormones. Primarily, oxytocin. Oxytocin is the hormone produced by new mothers to bring on lactation at the sight, smell, or sound of their babies. In the first days of their lives, babies, too, experience a rush of oxytocin at the sight, smell, and sound of their mothers, helping to cement the bond between them. Oxytocin produces a host of physiological changes, including decreased blood pressure, and it can even shut down the fight-flight response. This hormone helps produce the bond between a mother and child, and researchers are increasingly suggesting between our pets and us. In a Japanese study, researchers observed that just looking at your dog can bring about a spike in oxytocin for the owner, and vice versa. This effect is intensified when humans touch their dogs, and this is precisely the premise on which dog therapy programs are run. Temperamentally calm, specially selected dogs are brought to nursing homes, hospitals, or into schools for childhood reading programs to work their oxytocin magic on their patients. In a way, when we say that an animal is tame, what tame really just means is that these animals have found a way, in conjunction with humans, to shut down their fear response. And that's precisely what oxytocin does. So, back around the prehistoric campfires, the most suitable wolves and the most suitable humans create an oxytocin feedback loop, and the rest is history. All this reminds us of a rather intriguing and oft-forgotten truth. An aspect of domestication that people don't often consider is that not only is domestication producing a change in the animals, the subjects of domestication, it's also changing the domesticators, often in surprising ways. By any yardstick, dogs were the first animals that humans domesticated. Dogs thus changed the way humans thought about the natural world. If it was possible to control and even shape the dog, why shouldn't they start domesticating other animals as helpers, companions, and potential portable sources of food? 
While the other early domesticates like horses, sheep, cattle, and pigs may have proven somewhat harder to integrate into human society, it was arguably that first contact with the dog that sparked the domestic revolution. It could also be argued that dogs had a far-reaching emotional and social impact on us. Just as humans selected the wolves that were most likely to be friendly to them, it was the friendliest humans involved in the process of domestication, willing to suspend their suspicion as the wolf approached the fireside. So, in the scramble to survive, somewhere along the line, dogs and humans domesticated each other. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week. <laughs>